you know, one of the one of the great gifts that God has given to us. Thank you. Yeah, one of the great gifts God has given to us um, as human beings is a diversity of talents and gifts. Right. Everybody is uh, is given uh, a way to honor the Lord in a particular gifting. Um, and some people have cultivated and developed that gifting to a very high level. Um, you know, the Psalms talk about playing the strings skillfully as a way to honor the Lord. Um, and so uh, that's what Audra has done with the gift that she has been given, and we are all blessed by that this morning. Um, and so, yeah. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, thank you very much for that. Uh, she uh, is always um, careful about playing specials because she doesn't want to draw attention to herself. Um, and I appreciate that spirit, uh, but always encourage her, look, we, we know the Lord has gifted you and you have developed your talent, and so we are blessed when you utilize it to honor him. And so uh, we're very thankful for that. Well, it's a good morning uh, to finish up our series on peace. Uh, this is the second Sunday of Advent, and it's the focus of, of the meditation for Advent this morning is on peace. Uh, and so it is a great time to finish this up and talk about uh, how we can pursue peace. Uh, next week, we're going to be starting a small series, a Christmas series in Matthew chapter 1 and uh, extending into Matthew chapter 2, and I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but you can open your Bibles to Matthew 5 this morning. That's where we'll land. Eventually, we'll get there. All of you are familiar in your lives with conflict with others. It's a part of life. To say that you will have conflict is between you and another person is the same thing as saying that your car will hit a pothole this winter in Michigan. <laughs> it's going to happen. There's no doubt about it. It's life, right? It's reality. It's where we live. You can try to avoid the pothole, but when you swerve to avoid the pothole on your right, you'll hit the one on your left. It's going to happen. And so today we're going to wrap up this series on pursuing peace and I'm hoping that today will be the most practical part of this. And I'm hoping it will be practical because we all need this because of the reality of facing conflict with one another. No doubt this past year has held conflict for you, a dispute for you, an argument, a disagreement with someone. And no doubt 2022 will hold more of the same. When we originally started talking about this, I think it was five weeks or so ago, I told you, and you may not remember this, but let me reiterate it. I told you that one of my goals for this series was to talk about and to focus on peace within the local church. I mean, we could talk about pursuing peace with those outside the church and how we live in a divided world, which is true, all of that is, but my focus and my attention is on relationships within the body, with those that we know and that we share our faith in Christ with. And my biggest concern for this, and part of the reason that we're talking about this, is because of the, the polarization in the world outside of the church and the culture, it's so divided and everybody's at one another's throats for a whole bunch of reasons, some legitimate, some not. Because of that situation and that division, my care and concern is that we will be out in the world as we're supposed to be out in the culture, interacting with folks and sharing the gospel and living our faith out. But the, the care is that, or the concern is that we'll bring that sort of polarization and division and tendency to fight into the church. 
and that we, we won't handle it particularly well. And so I want to equip you and help you, help myself as well, to be prepared to know how to handle conflict within the body of Christ. And so what we've tried to do in this series is beginning in the first couple of weeks, we tried to fill out the big picture. We tried to talk about what is peace and what does that look like biblically, and then what disrupts peace, what actually causes conflict. And then a couple of weeks ago, we talked about some of the attitudes, the dispositions, and character qualities that are necessary if you're going to be the type of person who pursues peace in your daily life. Let me remind you, uh, as we sort of recap the series, the goal of what we're doing here. We ought to pursue peace with one another because God values peace. We want to reflect his care and his concern for harmony in relationships as much as we can. You even see that in the songs we sang this morning. Christ has come to earth in order ultimately to bring about peace and to end strife and wars and fighting. That's one of the the goals uh, that that he had. And so in this goal that we have here for our series, I want to focus this morning on that word pursue. We ought to pursue peace. This is something that we actively go after. And so I want to address the question this morning of what actions... We talked about attitudes, right? But now I want to talk about what actions do we need to take to intentionally and actively pursue uh, harmony and peace with one another. We talked about the attitudes a couple weeks ago, but there are some concrete steps. There are some things that you and I need to do in order to pursue peace. And this should be very practical for us because it's not abnormal to have conflict with people in the church, right? Uh, We all are different. We all have a diversity of skills. We all have a diversity of personalities. People are all over the map, and that is a gift of God. But at times, those differences of approaching life and those differences of perspective and of wiring can cause us to get into disputes and arguments with one another. And beyond just the differences in personality, we are all sinful people. I don't know why it's so shocking to me when people sin and they do wrong things. I don't know why it's so shocking to others when I do wrong things and I handle situations poorly. We are all sinners. And even though we have new life in Christ, the old man hangs on and is still there shaping and influencing us in some ways. And so we sin. And I don't want you to be caught off guard by that but I want you to be able to address it. People are going to say wrong things. They're going to act in wrong ways. You're going to do the same thing. So what do you do in response to that? And so today I'm going to give you four actions necessary to pursue peace with others in the midst of conflict. So today we're talking about something that is, the conflict has already started. It's headed down that road. And so what do you need to do to respond to that conflict and to handle it in an appropriate and a God-honoring way. Now, before we get to these four actions, I want to talk about how not to handle conflict, okay? So this is, this is brief, but there are, there are two sort of default ways of handling conflict that I would say, when I list these, you're going to probably go, oh yeah, <laughs> I do that one, or I do that one, or some combination of them. I want you to think back over the last conflict that you have had. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with another person. Maybe it's someone at work. 
you were frustrated, you entered into conflict with them, you're disappointed, there was clearly a dispute, and so how did you respond? What came naturally to you? There's a book that talks about all of this stuff as far as conflict resolution and peace among believers. It's an excellent book called The Peacemaker. It's by an author named Ken Sandy. It's a uh, it's been around for a while, but if you can get it, if you have any interest at all in exploring these topics to, to a greater degree, I would recommend that book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And in this, he has this chart that I'm going to show you here in a second where he lists possible responses to conflict. And these responses go, they're on a scale. They go from this end all the way over here. And on the two ends of this are unhealthy, unbiblical ways to respond to conflict. Now, I want to show you this chart here, and the middle responses to this are, are ways that we'll talk about later. These are responses that are appropriate and biblical, but then you can see you sort of start to slide out into these unhealthy responses, and I want to draw your attention to the left side. I don't know which and the right side here. I'll let you decide. I'm really confused about what you're, what you're looking at here, right? So you can see on one side there is the escape responses. And you can see on the other side there are the attack responses. These are the two broad default ways that you and I tend to handle conflict. All right? Now, you know how this works, right? You have a disagreement with your spouse, and one of you gives the other the silent treatment for a couple of days. I don't know if anyone else has ever done that. I may have done it. Bethany may have has done it, but maybe we're the only ones. But this is how this works. Rather than talking about the issue at hand, you have a dispute, a disagreement. Rather than talking about the issue and coming to a resolution, you ignore it. You clam up. You stop talking and trying to address the issue at hand. You try to escape from the uncomfortable conversations that you need to have. It's not fun when you're in a conflict to resolve it with the other person. You're both frustrated. And so you back off and you try to escape from it. And the silent treatment lasts a couple of days. And then at some random point, you two begin to act like everything is okay again. And you start to converse and you start to talk. Now, there are times... The Bible teaches us to let love cover a multitude of sins, right? So your spouse says something that maybe hurts your feelings a little bit, but in love, you're able to let that cover a multitude of sins. And so you, you, you forget about it. But there are other times where the hurt is genuine and deep enough, and there's enough of a conflict there that you cannot respond by letting it slip into escape mode. You have to deal with it in order to bring about reconciliation and repentance. The other approach on the opposite side of this, the other unbiblical, unhealthy approach, is attack mode, right? And maybe you deal with this because of your deal with conflict this way because of your personality and wiring, family background, how you've been shaped and influenced. But instead of letting it go, or instead of the silent treatment, instead of escaping from it, you pounce and you attack, and you go after it. And the whole goal here is not to have an honest conversation to deal with the issue at hand, but the goal is I am going to win. My perspective is going to dominate in this. I am right, 
and I'm going to win. And my inner lawyer comes out at that point. And I use all information in a way that is slanted toward my perspective. I'm not caring about the truth. I'm not caring about resolution. I'm not caring about the other person. I just want to be right here. There's no patience. There's no grace. There's certainly no confession or forgiveness. And you just attack. And eventually, what tends to happen in this is the other side sort of throws up their hands and withdraws, or maybe they give a false confession just to calm you down, but the issue is never really dealt with, and the attack mode doesn't bring about resolution. So if you have these two sides here, escaping and attacking, what happens is the escape mode fakes peace. You pretend that there's peace. And maybe your marriage relationship has gotten into this over the years. You have conflict and you never actually deal with it and talk about it. And instead, you both sort of pretend like everything's okay. And you sort of move on when there's real hurt that is there and has developed over time. And the other side, the attack mode, breaks peace. So you fake peace or you break peace. You break the harmony that should be there. Now, the problem with both of these is that the relationship, whether it's marriage or whether it's some other relationship, never actually moves forward. It never advances to where it needs to go. It never does that if either of these two responses are used. And all of us tend to slide into one of these responses or the other because of our, our sin nature. So... If we're not supposed to respond with, by escaping or attacking, then what do we need to do? What are some concrete action steps that we need to take? This is not an exhaustive list. There's more to this and more detail that we could fill out, but I don't want to keep you here till 6 p.m. tonight. And so we're going to deal with four actions, and this should give you a good start on this. First of all, accept the opportunity to be a peacemaker. So this is something that it's an action. You have to, in your mind, begin to think of this conflict as an opportunity for you to be a peacemaker. It's easy and it's natural to view conflict as something that you run from or as a competition to win. Instead, the action you should take and I should take is to flip around your thinking and view this as a stewardship that has been given to you by God. He's placed it in your hands in order to obey him and to obey his word and to be a peacemaker. Listen, God is completely sovereign and it's no accident that some of these things happen in our lives and he plans on using the conflict that you're involved in to sanctify you and to change you. And... He plans on using this to change the other person involved as well. It is a stewardship. It is an opportunity. And here's the beautiful thing. He's given us all that we need to be able to respond appropriately. 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is talking specifically to a pastor, Timothy, in this situation, but the principle applies to the Word of God 
and its use in our lives. God has equipped us in his word with everything that we need to obey him, to love him, to know him, and to live at peace with one another. The Bible is a sufficient guide for you to real reconciliation, to actual peace and harmony with that person that you are right now so frustrated with. It's a guide to that. And even if genuine reconciliation can't happen, right? The Bible talks about living at peace with all men as much as is possible from your side of it. Even if real reconciliation cannot happen, the Bible still equips you with the attitudes and the perspectives that you need to approach that person with. And we'll talk about that later. So rather than viewing the conflict, the difficulty as an annoying circumstance that you wish God wouldn't bring into your life, that's keeping you from more important things, instead start to view this as a real stewardship and as an opportunity. And maybe this is one of the most important things that you can do, is to steward this situation appropriately and biblically, exercise your faith by becoming a peacemaker. And view it the way that the Apostle Paul viewed his ministry. I love this. 1 Corinthians 4, he's talking about the new covenant ministry he's been given, but the principle that goes across the board. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And that's what God asks of us in the midst of conflict. Not to win, but to be faithful. To be faithful to apply his word and, and act out of your, of your faith here. That's what he's looking for. That brings us to our second action here to actively pursue reconciliation, actively, intentionally, aggressively, what other, whatever other synonym you want to put in there. Go after and value reconciliation. I mean, let me remind you again of this. I think I just quoted this verse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, right? I mean, everything you can do in your power Live peaceably with all. It's not always possible. Again, we'll, we'll discuss that later. It's not always possible. But as much as it depends on you, everything you can do, God has equipped you to do that. And so I think this text helps us to see the urgency and the importance of this task. But now I want you, if you're not there, to go to Matthew 5. And you can actually turn there because I want you to look at this text in your Bible as I explain what's going on here. I want you to see how urgent this task of reconciliation is for you as a believer. Now, this text that Danny read this morning comes in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And it comes in a section of the Sermon on the Mount that goes from Matthew 5, 21, it begins this whole section, to verse 48, and I don't know if you're familiar with the sermon, but in this section, Matthew 5, 21 to 48, you can read it later, there are six different topics that are addressed. And each of these topics begins the same way. Look at verse 21. You have heard that it was said, and then look at the beginning of verse 22. But I say to you. Okay? So Jesus is going to deal with six different ethical, practical issues here, and he's going to begin each of them this way. 
Now, if you've heard teaching on this before, almost everyone reads these, this section and these six topics and these pronouncements, you've heard it said, but I say to you, as really containing two parts. You've heard it said is the first part, but I say to you is the second part. And a lot of times, maybe it's even in your Bible, these six topics and the way they're handled are called the antithesis because there's two parts and they're opposite of one another. Okay, And so the, the, the basic way that most people read this is that Jesus is saying either the Old Testament taught this when he says, but you know, you've heard it said, he's saying, okay, the Old Testament taught this, or he's saying the religious leaders have misunderstood the Old Testament and they taught this. Okay, you've heard this said. And then in the second part, he says, most people interpret this to say, okay, you've heard this said, and it's either misinterpreted or the Old Testament says this. Now I'm going to clarify to you what the right way to understand this is, or to, he's going to teach something different. And so when you break this into two parts, what tends to happen is we tend to put all of our emphasis and our actions in response to this on the second part, where Jesus says, but I say to you, we tend to think, well, that's the most important part of this. And so I need to draw my application out of this. So here's the problem with that. And I will show you in this, this text here that we're looking at. When Jesus says, but I say to you, he's not actually giving us different instructions to solve the problem. I mean, look at this. What does he say? You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, you've heard that teaching. But I say to you, is he solving the problem here? No, he's making the problem worse. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so we tend to put all our emphasis on where he says, but I say to you, and we think he's giving us instructions on how to live properly. And so we make application like this. Well, now we shouldn't be angry. What we do is we just heap more law up on ourselves and we make it a lot more difficult. Well, Jesus is saying, uh, yeah, I don't want you to murder, but murdering is the same thing as anger. And so don't be angry here. And that's where we end this. And we end with this very difficult teaching and instruction. And actually what Jesus is, is doing here is he's showing us how we stay in a cycle of conflict that ends up in murder, is we cultivate anger in our hearts. There's no solution in verse 22. But we make the solution, just don't be angry. Where's the solution? And this is the third part of this. And you'll see this pattern if you were to continue to read in most of the rest of these six. There's three parts, not two. And here's where the instructions come in. Jesus is, is wanting us to be whole in our Christianity and in our walk with him. The third part given here has a command in it. Look at verse 23. So... If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. This part is filled with commands. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. 
Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The solution to anger and murder and conflict is not just don't be angry. The positive solution that Jesus wants us to pursue is to go after reconciliation hard. Look at the two words here that are key to this, something and quickly. So when he says the word something, this is a very broad description of conflict. Look, whatever it is, you apply your life to this. Whatever is going on, there's something between you and another person. Whatever is causing the disruption, that's what Jesus is talking about here. And the second word there is really the key to the whole thing. Go quickly, right? If you're giving your gift at the altar, in the temple, and you remember that you have a conflict with someone over something, and there's a disruption and a break in relationship, the answer is not just don't be angry with that person. The answer is go after them hard. Find them. Pursue them. Go after them with a passion for reconciliation. That's the law of Christ. That's the work of the Spirit in us. That's gospel-oriented living. I want to pursue reconciliation. And so Jesus isn't just teaching here, don't be angry. He's more concerned to teach you how to live a full life with healthy relationships. And so the focal point of his teaching here in the sermon, in this text, is to pursue reconciliation with others with urgency. Go after it hard. And as you pursue reconciliation, you need to have this third action as a part of that reconciliation. So four actions, accept the opportunity, actively pursue reconciliation, and then articulate the truth in a loving way. Truth and love are both necessary to have a healthy and a growing relationship. You need both of those. This is true of marriage. This is true of any other relationship. Truth and love are necessary. Both of those are necessary for a healthy relationship and to resolve conflict. You can't genuinely resolve a dispute or conflict without both of those being active. The truth has about the situation has to be made clear. You can't ignore it. Now it's the whole escape thing, right? You cannot ignore the truth. You have to make it clear. Take this into any other realm and you want the truth to be clear about a problem that is there, right? A few years ago, some of you will probably remember this. A few years ago, I had a funny looking spot on my face under my left eye here. And I was not all that concerned about it, but my wife saw something online that made her concerned about it. And so she said, you need to go to a dermatologist and get this checked out. Now, I was not crazy about going, as most men are not, about going to the doctor, right? I didn't want to go. I said, ah, come on. It's been there for a while. It's not, I don't really want to go. Why, though, did I ultimately decide to go to the dermatologist? What motivated me to go? Because I wanted the truth. I wanted a doctor, a professional, to speak the truth to me about the potential problem on my face. 
And I wanted to know what treatment needed to happen. And so I went, and the, the dermatologist walked into the room, and she said, that looks like skin cancer. <laughs> and I wasn't thrilled when she said that at all. And when the day of surgery came to remove it, it was not fun. I did not enjoy it. I did not wake up just excited about that day. But ultimately, the best thing and the healing thing took place because someone spoke the truth to me. And they made a proper diagnosis about my problem. You all know that's true about medical issues. And so let's bring that over into relational issues. If I just would have said, I don't want to go, and ignored it for four, five, six more years and tried to escape from the problem that was there, I would be in a heap of trouble today. My face would be even in, in more trouble than it's in as I grow older. So you have to speak the truth. It has to be there as a part of a relationship. But when you speak the truth, it always, in the context of a Christian relationship, in any relationship, has to be done out of a heart of love. It will not be received well if it is not done out of a heart of genuine care and concern. So in your marriage, you don't just load up the truth gun and fire it all the time in whatever direction you might feel it needs to be fired, right? If you do that without love and care and concern for genuine reconciliation and healing, it's not going to be helpful. and It's not going to be received well. A set of authors, Tim and Kathy Keller, address this. Uh, I love their book on marriage. If, you, if you're looking for a good book on marriage, it's called The Meaning of Marriage, and it's fantastic. Bethany and I have been using it for years with premarital couples and for our own benefit as we help go through it with couples. But they address this truth and love paradigm. And here's what they have to say. Truth without love ruins the oneness, right? This is the truth gun that you just fire. Truth without love ruins the oneness, and love without truth gives the illusion of unity but actually stops the journey and the growth. And so there you see the escape route and the problems that it causes and the attack route. Notice the problems. Escape response, you get a piece that is faked. It's not real. When you, when you lack the truth, it's not a genuine piece. And when you attack and you load up your truth gun, it breaks the piece when you don't have love. And so if you, if you never address the reality of the situation and you never talk about it with the truth, you're not going to have a genuine relationship. And the opposite is true as well. You're pretending. And so how do we operate out of both of these? That's the question, right? Truth and love have to both be there. So what brings those two together? How, do, how are we able to operate out of both of those? And that's our last action. Notice I chose the word acquit because I wanted to keep the alliteration going there. Classic pastor move, right? But it is a good word. Acquit 
solve the issue, come to reconciliation through confession and forgiveness. Let me show you the rest of the quote here. And I love this that I just put up, right? This is how it finishes. Truth without love ruins the oneness. Love without truth gives the illusion of unity, but actually stops the journey and the growth. The solution is grace. The experience of Jesus' grace makes it possible to practice the two most important skills in marriage. And you can broaden this out to any relationship. Forgiveness and repentance. Only if we are very good at forgiving and very good at repenting can truth and love be kept together. The grace of God to recognize my sin and not be overwhelmed by it allows me to confess my sin, to practice that in my relationships. And it's a wonderful thing. And the love of God and for that other person allows me to then respond to their confession with genuine and real forgiveness, as the Lord has done for us. And so you bring these two together and you get genuine oneness and the relationship can continue to grow and to deepen and to be a biblical relationship. A biblical unity can be there. And so you need both confession or repentance and you use the word confession and then you need forgiveness. So let's start to understand these two with confession. This is absolutely necessary for reconciliation. This is an action that you and I need to to learn to practice and take. What's confession? To confess means to say the same thing about my sin or my problem in this situation. And so what this means is if you have a conflict, then you own what you have contributed to the situation, whether that contribution is 95% or 5%. You own it. And you fully acknowledge that to the other person. Now, there are some really bad ways to confess. Confess, right? I'm confident you've heard these. I have heard these for sure from people. Sometimes you'll hear a person say something like this. I'm sorry if you were hurt or if I wronged you, right? Anytime you throw the word if or but into a confession, it is no longer a biblical confession. When you say if you were hurt, what you're actually doing is accusing the other person. It's a knock on the other person and saying, well, if you weren't so sensitive and if you didn't have a problem with me, I wouldn't be saying this to you. You're actually making the problem worse when you say, well, hey, sorry if that was a problem the other day, what I said. (laughs) To confess... Biblical confession, the confession that we bring to the Lord, is not an if confession or a but confession. It is to fully and completely own my wrongdoing. And I can do that because of the grace of God, because I've been forgiven by him. And so I own that wrongdoing and I ask for forgiveness without excuses. Now, when that happens, when there is an honest confession, then forgiveness can take place. Now, Let me say something here that may come as a surprise to you, but I'll explain it. I do not believe, biblically speaking, that there can be forgiveness until there is confession and repentance. So it doesn't happen. It cannot happen. Why? Our forgiveness of others, Ephesians 4.32, is modeled on God's forgiveness of us. 
And God does not just automatically forgive anyone and everyone, does he? Repentance, confession, recognizing my wrongdoing and my sin is necessary for there to be forgiveness. Listen to what Jesus says. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And so there must be confession, but here's the beauty of this. When repentance and confession happens, according to Jesus, forgiveness should be the response of a child of God. Man, when that person comes to you and acknowledges they're wrong, there's nothing sweeter than offering the forgiveness that you have been given in Christ to them. I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to treat you as a moral degenerate after this. There's a, there's a release of you in this situation. So what's forgiveness? Here's a really good definition. This is a great book called Unpacking Forgiveness by this author here. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously, there's that grace, the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person. Although... Not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Now notice here in this very good and I think biblical definition of forgiveness, notice here that reconciliation is a part of forgiveness. Can you forgive someone and say those words, I forgive you, and never speak to them again or be reconciled to them? That's not how God treats us. He doesn't forgive without reconciliation. Now, I know there are probably questions popping up in your mind. There may be times when a particularly egregious sin keeps us from putting two people back in the same room together. The reconciliation process may need to be done carefully and with great wisdom. And those two people may not end up being close friends again because of the sin that was done. But forgiveness is not forgiveness when reconciliation is excluded. It's not biblical forgiveness. So that's reality. That's the nature of what Scripture teaches. Now, if forgiveness can only be given when confession is there and an acknowledgement of wrong is given to you as the offended party, what do you do if they never ask for forgiveness? What do you do if the other person is unrepentant? They don't see they're wrong. They won't admit it. They're not concerned about it. Does that give you and I the opportunity to hold a grudge and to cancel them? I've been waiting to cancel someone. No. It obviously doesn't give you that opportunity to hold a grudge and to cancel. But you don't offer automatic forgiveness because there is no such thing. So how do you respond? What do you do? I think Romans 12 is really helpful. And this book, Unpacking Forgiveness, goes here when talking about dealing with an unrepentant person. Here's the guidance. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, right? And I think that's a key part of this. You don't pursue vengeance against that person who's unrepentant. You don't hold a grudge. But here's the 
the attitude that you do take. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what do you do? You don't hold a grudge. You don't seek revenge. As you have opportunity, you treat that person as an image bearer with kindness. And at the same time, you commit them to God's justice and wrath. And you acknowledge if you are unrepentant and you continue in this path, you are going to end up finally and fully under the wrath of God. And that is not a place you want to be. And as you commit them to God's wrath, you graciously call them to repentance and you graciously seek justice in this situation as you have opportunity. You don't ignore the consequences of sin out of some sort of automatic forgiveness here. Now, to bring all of this together for over the last couple weeks, I think if you will cultivate the four attitudes that we talked about two weeks ago, the attitudes of being gospel-shaped, right? This whole thing is really talking about how the gospel influences and shapes us. If you will cultivate the attitude of being gospel-shaped, of being kind and gentle, of being a humble person, of being a reasonable person, that was part of this. And when you start to cultivate those attitudes, if you will act out of these four actions that I've given you today, if you'll accept the opportunity, begin to view conflict as an opportunity, a stewardship that God has placed in your hands to act on his word, to be a peacemaker, if you will aggressively pursue reconciliation as much as you can, if you will balance truth and love and do that by operating out of grace, and if you will learn how to both confess and to offer forgiveness, because I'm going to be the one offending and I'm going to be the one offended at different times and in different circumstances. And so I have to learn how to humbly confess and repent. And I have to learn how to graciously forgive and release that person of wrong when they seek forgiveness. If all of that will happen by God's grace, and as you're immersed in the gospel, then I think you and I will grow into people who are peacemakers and who bring great unity to the body of Christ. And that's really, according to one of our key texts in this, Ephesians 4, what the gospel means for us. We're one body in Christ, and so we know how to operate as one body even when there's conflict. We pursue unity by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. What wonderful guidance and wisdom you give to us through the scriptures. Help us to, to make application here, Lord, but ultimately, I pray that we would be consumed with your grace and your forgiveness of us. Lord, I pray that the gospel would just shape our hearts and form us into peacemakers because of all that you have done for us. Help that to be the great reality that is in the, the forefront of our minds day to day. And even as we enter into conflict with those around us, as it comes up, that we would handle it out of a, a biblical and a gospel-shaped mindset. Thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name. Amen.